space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the timeship TARDIS. It's continuing mission to explore capitalism run rampant, to seek out new zombies and new killer space stations, to boldly go where Nardole would rather not. It's This Week in Time Travel for Tuesday, May 16th. Hey, everybody. Hi, Alyssa. Obviously, we've got an episode review coming in a little bit, but we need to stop everything. Stop everything? Okay, I'm, I'm stopping recording right now. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. And if you're listening, don't don't press the pause button because you absolutely need to hear this. Big Finish just came out with the best news in all of May. There are going to be new 10th Doctor adventures with Billy Piper back as Rose Tyler. Oh my God, I cannot contain the squee right now. I am also similarly enthused about this development in the world of audio production featuring another three... Chip, for the love of God, show some excitement. (laughs) Hey, 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 I'm happy too, okay? The Tenth Doctor is my doctor. I will not not dispute that uh, one bit. And the first three Tenth Doctor audios from Big Finish with Catherine Tate were fantastic. And it is just a pleasure to see uh, Billy Piper join in uh, for the next thing. Although I was highly amused by Doctor Who magazine's Tom Spilsbury, who said that the worst thing about all of this is now technically you have to put the volume two Tenth Doctor audios on the shelf to the left of the volume one Tenth Doctors because Rose does come before Donna. Nerd problems. (laughs) And what are we ever going to do if they manage to get Freema back to do Martha? Then you're going to have to do volume two, volume three, volume one. It's going to be like Star Wars. Everything is in the wrong order. It's going to be going to be pretty intense. But the first three stories do sound interesting. Um, We have Attack of the Zaros by John Dorney. We have Sword of the Chevalier by Guy Adams and Cold Vengeance by Matt Fitton. All three of those stories sound really exciting. You can go uh, read the short descriptions on Big Finish's website, though I do have to express some mild disappointment that there is not a single woman writing for The Tenth Doctor, Volume 2. I thought Jenny Colgan's uh, story from Volume 1 was absolutely amazing. If you haven't listened to it yet, actually stop everything pause this podcast go to big finish's website download that story it's incredible it feels like you're watching an episode uh from the rtd era you can see it happening in front of you so i'm a bit disappointed um that we don't have any women writing for it i'm still excited but you know there's a little asterisk there i i can understand that um at the same time any new Tenth Doctor and Rose content, any any new Tenth Doctor content, period, I'm always really, really excited about. And um, Big Finish is just doing so well with the 
so-called new doctors right now. They've got access to everything up to the currently airing doctor. I have to believe that at some point in the dim, dark future, we are going to see Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi Doctor Who audios from Big Finish. I think it's just a matter of time. The only downside to that is the only way Capaldi does Big Finish audios is if, well, when he stops making TV shows. Yeah, but also, I don't think it's going to be much of an ask to get Peter Capaldi to do Big Finish audios. It's just going to be like, hey, Peter, do you want to continue doing this thing that you loved and you've wanted to do ever since you were a child? I know it's a difficult ask for you, but... And in a setting where you don't have to memorize lines and you don't have to worry about uh, wrecking your knee when running around corners. Exactly. So I'm excited for that eventuality. But moving right along, uh, we're going to do a quick recap of stats for Oxygen by Jamie Matheson. It had overnight viewing figures of 3.57 million. Uh, It was fourth place overall for the night, and it had an audience appreciation index of 83, which is pretty dang good. Great AI. Um, The numbers for the ratings were down a little bit, and my pure uninformed speculation is that people were conserving their television watching um, energies for Eurovision after Doctor Who. Yeah, Eurovision is sort of taking over my Twitter. Like, I can't even watch it, and I know everything that goes on during Eurovision. (laughs) In other news, so over the weekend, uh, the rumor mill kept on churning, and Luke Treadaway led with the bookies for potential 13th Doctor. Uh, And it kind of landed with a resounding... It's just, there's nothing interesting about him. He's, it, like, if you took a straight white guy out of central casting that vaguely looked like some sort of combination of Matt Smith and David Tennant, that's Luke Treadaway. Like, there is nothing new or interesting about him as the doctor. Like, I'm sorry, I'm sure he's a lovely man. Fine decent actor but it does feel like we're treading old ground again it feels like if this is who it is that the bbc is completely unwilling to break out of that mold of trying to find a young white guy to play the doctor uh and it's no guarantee of future success at a certain point it's going to become dull and predictable and i'm sort of feeling that right now i don't feel really anything about luke treadaway other than complete boredom <laughs> uh, maybe that's mean but ugh, really well uh, there is, there is a ray of light in that same radio times story another name was mentioned Sasha Dewan was also uh, named as a contender, and he would be a person of color and would be just something different from what we would be getting with Luke Treadaway. So all is not lost, Alyssa. All is not lost. Nope. And I do like him. I think he would be really interesting. It's just there's a certain point with the rumor mill where I start to get really concerned White men have been leading over and over and over again. And occasionally a woman pops up 
And that's almost immediately shut down, which makes me think those conversations were never very serious if they were happening at all. Occasionally, a person of color pops up, and usually those comments are met with the actor saying, yes, I would love to do the show. And usually if they're in contention, they are silent about it because conversations are still ongoing. So I'm getting nervous about who they're considering for the role, and I'm preparing myself to be disappointed. Hopefully that preparation will actually make you all the more excited when a great name comes up. I hope so. Jamie Matheson did a Reddit Ask Me Anything after Oxygen premiered on Saturday night. Uh, We'll drop a link to it in the show notes. He's been sort of going back through and answering questions, though I think he may be done at this point. Um, But he does have some interesting comments about Oxygen. Apparently, the original story was supposed to be much darker than the story we got, which is really dang impressive if you consider how dark that story actually was. We also... Uh, heard that he hasn't heard from Chris Chibnall yet. So never say never, but that doesn't seem like he's going to be coming back for Chibnall's first season. And there's a lot of other interesting conversations about his previous episodes of Doctor Who. So you should definitely go check it out. One last bit of news, an article again at the Radio Times by Hugh Fullerton. It's an interview with Michelle Gomez, where she uh, reports that When Stephen Moffat and Peter Capaldi leave Doctor Who, so shall she. Dang it, guys! My pals are going, so I'm going, Gomez told RadioTimes.com. Everybody's leaving, so I'm going to. I mean, what would I do without Peter and Stephen? Who would I be? No! Okay, look, but we got John Sim back, and we never thought we were going to get John Sim back, so never say never, never say die. Maybe she's going to come back. And this, uh, listeners, is the emotional journey of Alyssa Frankie from Tin and Rose and Big Finish to Michelle Gomez. (laughs) We're going to take a break, and I'm going to uh, get some smelling salts or a puppy or something like that. Whiskey. Uh, Whiskey. You've asked for that before, if I recall correctly. When we're back, we'll talk about oxygen. Yeah, kind of a tense episode, huh? It was. Like, this is one of the few episodes that I have found genuinely horrifying. Like, not even just, like, a little bit scary, but there is something sort of deeply horrifying about this episode to me. Uh, I, I was sitting the entire time watching this episode, like, massively tense. Like, I am still tense. I am still trying to calm my body down about that. Uh, it was really well done, I thought. Well, Okay, it was well done, but uh, wow, you've uh, taken that uh, further than further than I did. You know, I thought it was tense, but I was not horrified. What 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 triggered you on this? So Jamie Matheson, when describing this story, is it's basically about making space scary again, and I thought that was a really interesting thing um, for the show because space and the vacuum of space hasn't really been a terrifying aspect of the show for a little while. It's actually been a little bit of uh, the punchline of things, you know, ships exploding, air is getting sucked out, and the doctor is also, you know, getting sucked out and putting on his spacesuit at the same time. And it's all sort of a laughing joke of, ha ha, blown out into space again. Uh, And this really hit into some of the things that make space 
deeply and genuinely horrifying to me of just there's that vacuum. And the only thing that sometimes separates you from that vacuum of space is barest centimeters of fabric and plastic and glass. And it that exposure, that thought that the tiniest little thing, the tiniest little tear, crack, smash, and you are open to the elements, to the vacuum of space, and you're dead. Like, that's what makes space genuinely scary for me. And I thought that this episode did an amazing job of bringing that horror back into the show, because it wasn't just about capitalism run rampant, and it wasn't just about... uh, bottom lines and company shenanigans. It was about how on the edge you are living in space and how if it's just the wrong system that gets set up to get humans launched into space, there's not a lot you can do to protect yourself if somebody decides you've outlived your worth and it's time for you to be expelled. That that to me is what made this so horrifying that you were right there living on the edge. And then also that interplay with the company has that much power over you. The company can decide you're expendable. You're, you have no more worth to us. So we've got a little line of code here and you're done and that's it. And there's nothing that can protect you from it. So that to me, that, that was what was uh, terrifying about it to me. And that's what caused genuine horror on my part. Mm. Uh, You know, I hadn't really thought about it that deeply in that way that, you know, living on the edge. There were two things that sort of muted the horror for me. And one of them was that I had just seen uh, a number of times Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 in the theaters. Uh, You've (laughs) not seen that yet, have you? I know. No, I haven't. So, uh, mild spoiler... Relatively early in the movie, some characters get tossed out of an airlock. And it's not dwelt on to any great extent, but the fact that this is a bad thing that happens is demonstrated. So I had just been through, and by the way, I'd seen the movie like three times. So <laughs> I'd had, I'd sort of had the horror of exposure to space uh, already demonstrated to me a few times uh, uh, repeatedly. So it wasn't as fresh on me um, having seen it this time. Um, and I wonder if any other people had just had seen uh, GOTG V2 um, would also possibly not find this episode quite as horrifying. But the other thing that got me was, I have to admit it, right in the, right in the pre-credit sequence, um, the zombie space people walking with clunky uh, magnetic boots and with their arms outstretched, that part of it, that steering into the Doctor Who trope of the slowly moving, um, literally Frankenstein walking threat, didn't work for me. It worked mildly better when we got the explanation that it's the suits, that the um, the people inside the suits are just basically uh, dead, literally dead weight. But we talked a little bit with Glenn Weldon uh, recently about one of the things that non-fans have to get over to become fans of Doctor Who. And if I'm not steeped in Doctor Who tradition, if I see zombies walking slowly with arms outstretched toward me and it's supposed to be a scary thing that almost seems campy to me and not horrifying 
I definitely agree that it started off a little campy. But I think that uh, Pearl Mackey really sold the horror of the situation when they came across that body standing there in the room, just staring, but still standing, you know, that dead, but not the way that we expect death to be seen. Uh, She really just absolutely was astounding in that scene, bringing in uh, a certain level of panic and horror into that that was subtle, uh, but incredibly powerful. So that, to me, sold it. That was where I really began to feel, yeah, this isn't even just a little campy, a little scary. Like, this feels genuinely kind of horrifying that would you be stuck in that situation? Your body is just along for the ride with this suit, which is going to continue working its way through the station across your normal path your normal duties yeah um i will say that i did like that scene very much in that we've talked about uh we've argued about uh the differences between series eight and series nine peter capaldi and uh you know consistency of the characterization and uh harshness versus lightness and all this other stuff I think we really are getting to where Stephen Moffat and the writers and Peter Capaldi have sort of integrated all of the pieces of it because the doctor is somewhat sympathetic, but he is not in any way sentimental when um, Bill sees the dead body and wants them to do something about it. You get a flash of that series eight doctor who is all business and has no time to waste on sen- on mere sentimentality when there is stuff to do that would help other people or would right or wrong or something like that. So I'm I'm enjoying seeing the counterplay of Bill sort of having the very human, the very every woman reaction to what she's encountering and the doctor not harshly dismissing it. But matter-of-factly dismissing it, you know, I'm, I'm your teacher. We've got to, we've got to move. We've got to deal with this. If we, if we take the time to get the body out of this suit or do something other, that's wasting, that's wasting valuable breaths, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a nice balance though between sort of early 12th doctor and present 12th doctor because he is very business as usual but he doesn't deny the horror of the situation either you know anytime bill is saying this is you know this is terrible can't we do something he's agreeing yes it's awful something has killed this person and left their body standing upright in a suit uh which is what i liked you know i i like that they haven't had the doctor dismissing denying downplaying the companion's fears or uh feelings about how they are reacting to what they see on their adventures. So that to me was something that was very wonderful. Uh, But those suits, man, I, it's a definitely a, of not a subtle message of the capitalism run rampant. Uh, But I thought that was a very interesting way to explore space travel and work in space of how companies would find profit every single opportunity they could what did you think of that sort of subplot uh it was not subtle it was not subtle at all um uh, and i'll be really interested to look over um the reaction as it spreads out you know we are recording this um we're recording this on the saturday 
we this will be released on Tuesday, and by then we will know whether or not a great popular upswell against Doctor Who and the socialist BBC came up in American shores. Because by and large, most Americans are not skeptical at all about capitalism. Um, and you can have much more free conversations about about criticizing the very nature of capitalism in Europe more so than you can here. Um, but I do think we are getting a little bit into that space in America now. I mean, you know, if our democracy survives until the podcast comes out on Tuesday, uh, I think that one of the things that we're seeing right now is a lot more people being skeptical of corporations when lives are on the line for Profit margins. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's been interesting about the current debate over health care and whether or not the Affordable Care Act uh, will be repealed and the Republican replacement will be put in place is a lot more people are speaking up and questioning whether or not those reforms will protect uh, human life because if it's a for-profit corporation, then people's lives are on the profit margins. And We see that especially with debates over, and sorry to everyone listening, I'm going to get a little policy wonky for a moment. We see that especially with the high-risk pools that they are discussing using as a replacement for protecting everyone with pre-existing conditions. And a lot of people are stepping up and saying, I've been in these pools or I have been in a situation where my health care was denied or suppressed or taken away from me because I had an expensive condition that needed treatment. And when it cuts into a healthcare company's profit, they talk about seeing worse service or service denied uh, or being shunt. Uh, or being shifted off into a high-risk pool uh, that doesn't serve their healthcare needs appropriately. So I think we are getting a little bit into a space in America where people are a little bit more critical of capitalism and how it impacts people's lives and how human life gets devalued when it interferes with a profit margin. So I think we're getting into the space this conversation can start to happen in the United States. Maybe. Um, but I don't think that we're to the point where people actually diagnose the problem as capitalism. This reminded me of early episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, where ham-fisted Gene Roddenberry inserted line about Picard talking to a clean-shaven Riker way back then, saying, ho, 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 how, uh, how, how remarkable it was that back then they had arguments over economic systems. Again, this is this is uh, totally uh, the perspective of a U.S. guy who's lived in uh, a southern state all of his life. But um, people will criticize corporate influence on healthcare and other things like that. But around here, they're rarely taking the next step as explicitly as the doctor does in this episode of saying that it's you know the problem is capitalism. It just took me by surprise. It's not something that I often hear on U.S. television. Yeah, but of course, it's a U.K. television show. So it'll be curious to see how the American fans react uh, once we've had a little bit more time for all of your hot takes and think pieces to hit the internet. 
Yeah, uh, there's a, there's an out, there is a non-zero chance that there will be an angry cover uh, cover story on National Review about Doctor Who. I'm just saying. They're indoctrinating our children. <laughs> it's going to be great. Uh, one thing I also did want to discuss: the Vault and Nardole. We got some uh, mildly interesting uh, look-ins to uh, that uh, subplot. It, it, excuse me, Alyssa, I have a question. Yes. Did Nardo really need that spacesuit? <laughs> Are you advocating for the murder by suffocation of Nardole? On I a am not sure that he station? needs to breathe. <laughs> Wow, we've really pulled you into the uh, Nardole does not deserve a place in this series. Camp. I did not say that. I'm just saying that I think he's a cyborg, right? He has screws and things like that. Does he actually breathe? Did we actually see him eat when they brought Chinese in on the TARDIS or whatever? He may be a perfectly good cyborg, but I'm not convinced that he needed a spacesuit during this episode. <laughs> and that would have solved so many problems right up front. Right. Sorry, uh, you. I think you had a serious uh, question to ask there, though. Uh, mostly just, what do we think about how that plot is working out? Do we think that Nardole has earned his place in this series? Is this whole connection with the vault making sense? So Nardole is still the hectoring aunt or the mum or whatever you uh, whatever you have here. He's certainly not as useful as he was when the doctor made him run around with a sonic screwdriver uh, early on. If he is designed to be the doctor's conscience and voice of responsibility, because the doctor has a very unique take on responsibility and what he should be conscientious about that's just sort of tailor-made to to portray nardole as an annoyance i do want the nardole who um had the satisfied shaking of hands with the doctor when bill finally got to the it's bigger on the inside line um yeah i'm i'm not sure where I'm not feeling him as much as I was feeling him at the beginning of the series. As for the vault situation, uh, we didn't get a whole lot of new information other than that the what it, whoever is in the vault would not want to see the doctor showing any signs of weakness. Beyond that, we don't know. But you know, the uh, the doctor is clearly not feeling his responsibility to the vault is so deep that he can't uh, swan off and have adventures. Um, and he has no problem with uh, Nardole. Um, he has no problem ignoring Nardole um, when Nardole calls him on it. So I thought that the vault thread was sort of treading water a little bit up until that very final revelation, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of interesting things with that. I think that I'm still not really on board. I just, I don't see what Nardole brings to it. He's a little bit of an exposition provider whenever we need to get back to the vault subplot. Would you call him the geek chorus? He is a little bit of a geek chorus, yes. He just he just comes in and provides a few more hints that the doctor has a responsibility to the vault. The doctor needs to be at the vault. The doctor can't go do off any of the fun things that we want to watch on the TV show because he's got to be at the vault. And I, 
I don't know. I, I've i gone back and forth on whether or not I've liked the way that Nardol has hectored the Doctor or not. I felt that it was better this episode than it has been in previous episodes. I thought the whole back and forth with the fluid link at the beginning was actually kind of cute. Um, and I thought he was fairly decent in terms of providing a voice of stern responsibility at the end of you nearly died you nearly died and let whatever it is that they are keeping in the vault loose on the earth and where would that lead to i do think it was sort of undercut by immediately having that revelation of the doctor is blind uh because then we get into um a whole thing now where the doctor has a different relationship with the vault and his responsibilities. Um, I think that the doctor being blind is something that's, it's interesting. I'm a little bit nervous about where they're going to go with this. We've been talking about how this season has been sort of episodic and meat and potatoes sort of Doctor Who. Um, With this revelation at the end of the episode, and with uh, Stephen Moffat writing next week's episode and that brief flash of the master in the or Missy in the uh, trailer, we could be on the verge of season arc territory here. We could be. My, you know, my my summation of the episode was I thought it was good. I think Jamie Matheson is great at doing classic feeling Doctor Who episodes that have a good sense of pace and um, sort of follow the format, but have an interesting have an interesting twist uh, to make them even more enjoyable. I this didn't strike me as well as his series eight episodes did, um, uh, but I thought it was still good. I thought it was still good. I liked it a lot. I think this is genuinely something I'll go to on a dark and stormy night for a little bit of a scary episode. Just remember where your sofa is and give yourself a little bit of room to hide behind it, I suppose. I'll join the cat back there. Elsewhere on the Incomparable Podcasting Network, this is what you'll find. Chip was on the Incomparable 352, Hold My Space Beer, talking with the team about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Erica Ensign and Deb Stanish cope with Stanley Cup playoff trauma on Beginner's Puck. And Verity Podcast's Liz Miles is a contestant when two teams' knowledge of the nerdy, useless, and obscure is put to the test in Inconceivable. All this and more at theincomparable.com. Every month, Eric Stadnick and Kyle Anderson take on a number of classic Doctor Who episodes and do their best to ignore the actors, sets, directors, and music. It's all about the scripts in Doctor Who, the Writer's Room podcast. Chip checked in with them about how the writing is measuring up so far in Series 10. So Eric and Kyle, I've been saying uh, on the podcast over the last few weeks that these 
initial episodes of series 10 so far have felt kind of like meat and potatoes episode where they're trying to execute on the format or the formula of what people typically think Doctor Who is supposed to be like. I was wondering if the two of you uh, agree with that or if you think that there's a deeper game that's been going on. I think I think both actually. I think b- there's both a deeper game going on that we can't quite see all of yet. And Although that, we might have had a a taste of it at the end of uh, this last episode. Yeah, no, I think that I think that probably factors in. But I think you're right. It's sort of it's it's um, it's allowing newer viewers, perhaps, or the idea of newer viewers at least, to sort of see what this show does. And so each episode has been markably distinct from the one before and after it, um, which means it's sort of it's touched on a lot of the different bases and sort of shown the variety of what Doctor Who stories can be in the modern era. Yeah, to me it feels like uh well every season of Moffat thus far has has he's tried to do something different or it's at least approached it in seemingly a different way. And this one to me uh and other people I've not I'm not the one who came up with this theory but uh it really feels like the beginning of series 1 like uh in you know the the Ninth Doctor and Rose season where um, you, you meet a, a girl, she's just a normal kind of person. And now she's swept up in this, um, this adventure. And so it kind of is, has been thus far sort of following the same formula of like episodes, like the first episode is on earth and the second episode is, um, you know, way, way in the future. And then like, you know, it actually following the RTD format fairly, fairly well. And I feel like the next batch is going to be where that kind of breaks, um, in, in terms of, because we have a three-parter right in the middle of the series, which is, you know, never been done before. Loosely linked three-parter, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, a, a loosely linked three-parter by three different writers. So when we start off with these sort of uh, baseline uh, Doctor Who-style episodes, does that work for you as a longtime viewer? And, uh, I mean, you pay attention to how episodes are written just really, really deeply. Um, but does the on the fir- surface of it simpler storytelling still work for you, or do you get that sort of well, they did a kind a lot of weirder stuff last couple of seasons? Do you get that like, moment? It, yeah, I feel like a formula you, you can use a formula and have it work as long as you just don't, uh, you know, as long as you bring something to it, if, as long as you bring life to it in some way. Like, I have no problem with you know. Uh, you know, how many base under siege stories have there been or how many, you know, um, uh, aliens invade invading London episodes have there been? Um, but, and, and those can be good or bad just depending on how, how they're sort of approached. So I don't, I don't think necessarily that, um, I sit there and go, Oh, I wish there was a, these were weirder and twistier episodes or anything like that. Because I mean, by and large thus far, I feel like all of these episodes have delivered on their formula. They're all taking, familiar tropes and doing something interesting with them. So I, 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 it's fine with me. Like, you know, a good, a good story doesn't, there's only seven plots, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> if, if you have to repeat those, it's fine. Yeah. I, I think, I think Kyle's exactly right, which is not something I say often. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, these, these stories that, he, that the writers have been telling, you know, through episode five. Yeah, exactly. There, there are only so many, you know, there's a huge variety of the kind of Doctor Who story you can do, but once you're in that, there's sort of there are the basic tropes that take hold. And so, you know, the most recent episode was Oxygen by Jamie Matheson, um, and that that was arguably a base under siege story. 
actually inarguably it was a base under siege story in its basic format something's in we need to hide we can't fight it what's going on blah um and but he layered on um great doctor bill relationships he layered on nardle which completely changes the dynamic he actually used nardle for the first time in the series really like as a sort of valid co-companion of some kind um mm. this sort of capitalist commentary um which doctor who's been doing off and on forever and um and then you know just this very sort of I mean, it's really funny uh, you know people were talking about f- f- uh scary it was and when I watched it, yeah, they're clearly scary moments, but I laughed so much watching that story. You know, just a lot of really good jokes, especially front-loaded, but also later on throughout. And so it's, it's not the architecture that needs to be changed every time. It's that you need to do something interesting within the architecture. And, you know, if you're really, really good, you can kind of break the architecture. You know, Stephen Moffat would break the architecture. Uh, RGD would break the architecture um, at times. But, you know, especially if you're a commissioned writer, I think you just tell the best version of the story that you can tell. Um, and I think I think generally the writers have done that, some, you know, better than others. But um, I don't think we've – I know some people had some issues with Knock Knock. I thought it was quite well done. I thought the others were quite well done too. I don't think we've had a sort of truly bland just by the number of story. It's been meat and mm-hmm. potatoes, but sometimes meat and potatoes are absolutely delicious. I think I've been trained by Stephen Moffat early on, you know, that sort of imprinting moment that uh, you expect the timey-wimey roller coaster complexity of something like The Big Bang when that's not the only skilled type of writing out there. What do you think specifically they're trying to accomplish with these stories besides tell a good crackling Doctor Who yarn? It, it seems that they're which is something that uh, the Moffat era has done throughout the Capaldi years thus far but where you know tell good companion doctor kind of relationship stories like have their friendship build and kind of go different places um uh, I mean at the base of it that's what you know drama really is it doesn't really matter if it's you know set in space or if it's just like in a house and no <laughs> with no monsters or whatever like if you have good relationships and and you can kind of build on that uh, then, then you have good storytelling. And I feel like he's also sort of letting the writers bring their own personality to the to the story. Certainly, um, uh, Jamie Matheson and uh, uh, Sarah Dollard. I really feel like, oh yeah, these the both of those stories had they had stuff they wanted to say, and um, and they used these two characters and situations in order to do that. And they told them in vastly different ways. Um, obviously, set in completely different you know, uh, time periods and, and everything like that. But it's like, that's, those are so far, those are the two episodes that have really spoken to me because it's like, Oh, I I can see what, uh, I can see the writers have stuff that they're passionate about and want to, uh, get out there in science fiction format. So, um, that's sort of like what it feels like to me is that he's trying to, he's, he's kind of just letting the writers who, uh, who he's commissioned kind of tell their own stories within the framework that is, that is, you know, meat and potatoes, Doctor Who. What's funny to me is that those two stories, um, the Sarah Dollard story, Thin Ice, and then Oxygen, are thematically the most similar, arguably. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thin Ice is largely about racism with a critique of capitalism underneath. Um, 
and whereas oxygen is a critique of capitalism with a, a discussion of racism underneath mm-hmm. um these two stories separated by knock knock kind of have they're going after something similar i don't know if we'll continue to see that um you know we don't know it's coming but it you know it it, it used to be essentially used to be quote unquote you know in the in the moffat especially the capaldi era um the only writer who would go political was peter harness and everyone else would mm-hmm. kind of just do jolly yarns of various kinds or whatnot it looks like he's kind of let everyone let their political animal out a bit um and that and i think that makes this the series so far more interesting as for the even the one, um, even the victims in knock knock were poor students who were scrabbling together to uh be able to afford a house yeah polyglot multinational multiracial i mean that was like i don't know whether it was writing or casting my guess is writing uh you know because pavel is a name <laughs> they they decided to <laughs> right. you know you go for it um this is a th- that was a statement about you know the modern britain and what it looks like um and in a way you know the person who is the bad guy is the child who cannot let go of his mother, the life that he used to have. So, you know, a little critique going on there. Um, And and as for timey-wimey or, you know, complicated, convoluted, I I think that's likely still coming is my guess. Yeah, Um, I would imagine so. uh, Between between all the questions left unanswered in the pilot and uh, now the doctor's blindness – and Moffat writing just a standalone episode in the middle of the series. I would not be surprised if Extremis completely invalidated half of this conversation by upending <laughs> what we think the series is about so far. Which is awesome timing on my part. <laughs> uh, so one would presume that we're going to find out sooner rather than later about uh, the meaning of the vault um, without speculating about what that plot device is actually going to entail. Um you know, this has not been an arc-heavy show to this point unless there's been stuff hidden in plain sight, but we have had the reminder going on in the background that there's this vault, there's this oath, there's this responsibility, there is this personality of some sort inside the vault. Um, is that... Do you do you two have a preference uh, for your serialized storytelling about how arc-heavy you want it to be? And how's it felt so far? Um, I feel like, I mean, it doesn't, I don't have like a preference if it's like, you know, uh, we, we, Moffat's done everything. Like he's, he's gone super arc heavy and he's gone kind of arc light, um, not like arc light cinemas, but arc light. Um, but, uh, that's a LA joke. Um, uh, but yeah, I feel like uh, I think the the vault is there just to kind of let let you you know remember that there is something going on there. There is a reason that he's teaching, and actually he's uh, it's been used primarily as like moti- a motivating factor or something, um, or kind of a, a a constant reminder that the doctor is kind of coming back toward what what the doctor is. Like he he had, I guess for fifty some years or whatever had shunned traveling in space and time and and nardle's there to kind of be like hey we you made a vow and all this stuff um to yourself and uh uh and and like through his relationship and friendship with and mentorship with bill um he's kind of you know getting reinvigorated he's he's getting more and more brave like going back in time and then coming back and obviously being 
um, and then going way into the future and off world and all this stuff that he's not supposed to do. But we see that that kind of spark there. So, so far, like the vault, the mystery of the vault is, is sort of less important to me right now as more of what like the vault represents to the doctor and how he's kind of, you know, blatantly shirking his own responsibility. Um, and surely that'll kind of come back at him as it will, because we saw in the next time trailer because he's blind. So that's that's, you know, whoever or whatever's in the vault's going to take advantage of the fact that he's blind. One would have to assume. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, you know, um, in terms of like what's better or, you know, it's all depends on execution. Um, many argue and it's hard to completely deny their argument that season six was far too heavy on the arc. Sure. Um, to the point where trying to watch that series independent of the rest of the series it can be challenging. Um, season nine had almost no arc. I mean, it was a, an emotional arc. For there was Clara, a character the arc for Clara. There was a character arc, which you would expect on any drama, but there wasn't like a plot arc. I think he's landed um, this season. It seems he's kind of in the Buffy vein where there's this thing going on. There'll be a big break point about it in the middle, maybe, and there'll be a big break point about it at the end. And otherwise, it'll kind of stay in the background while you have Monster of the Week or Adventure of the Week type stories. I think, you know, I think that's probably actually for a show like Doctor Who, that's a family show, you know, that people don't always watch all the time. Probably a really good way of approaching it. People aren't going to miss too much if they miss a week because of whatever or they watch it late or what have you. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, so I think, but I think the interesting thing about the vault, um, and I kind of wish we'd seen more of it, is that it did keep the Doctor on Earth for this long period of time, um, and apparently not only on Earth, but not doing anything. Like he wasn't running to help Unit in the '80s or something when the other Doctors were all off. He wasn't. He was. He was just sitting, being a lecturer. Mm -hmm. um, and that's. I, I kind of wish they'd explored that just a bit more this idea of what happens when the doctor literally can't go and stop the bad aliens or investigate the whatever mm. that's um, unless he's constantly having issues with people coming for the vault, which they kind of imply maybe. So I don't know. That is certainly fertile, big finish territory sometime down the road. Wouldn't you say? I would, I would think so. Assuming Peter Capaldi is up for the job. Um, I guess my last question for you then before we go is, what kind of a grade would you give uh, the scripts and the writing for uh, Series 10 thus far? And I forbid you from assigning an incomplete. <laughs> um, I'd give it like a solid B, B plus, maybe even A minus. Like I've, I've really enjoyed um, there's I've had my issues with a couple of the stories, but it's never made, made it um, made me not enjoy at least most of the stories. Um, uh, yeah, which is like. I always feel like I have rose-colored glasses for, uh, during a season. It always feels like, am I just liking it because it's new Doctor Who and I like everything? But, um, but I don't feel like that. I, you know, like I feel like these are actually like good, solid stories, and um, they're fun to watch. And yeah, so I'd, I'd give it a minus B plus kind of territory. Yeah, I think that's probably about right. Um, I think it's been interesting seeing the sort of as Kyle said earlier, the sort of different voices of the writers come through very strongly. Um, there are different concerns, there are different ideas, things they're more, you know, they're sort of, um, they're sort of just interested in and that they, they want to explore via Doctor Who. Um, and so I would, yeah, easily, 
easily a B plus, maybe an A minus. I think, you know, I think most people probably have their own the the weakest story for themselves, but I don't none of them have been bad and none of them have even really, in my opinion, been sort of kinda bad. There's not been, been asleep no more in the bunch. No, not even close. Not even close. Or, you know, like people rave about season five, which is very well written by and large, but it also has the Chibnall Silurian two-parter, which is terribly written at times. Mm-hmm. Just impossibly bad moments where you're like, did someone read this before it went out? Like, what happened? Yeah, unless we forget there is victory of the Daleks in that season. Yeah. So, you know, even a good season can have bad stories creep in. This may not have, as of yet, any, oh my God, that's so imaginative and crazy stories, but... None of them have been, you know, they've all been good to pretty good. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's an achievement for five episodes of, in a streak. And mm-hmm. they've all Absolutely. been very clearly something that you can point to and say, that's Doctor Who. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They're not they're not pushing any, uh, you know, show boundaries, but they don't they don't kind of need to. I feel like at this point, Moffat doesn't need to prove anything. He just needs to end kind of on a high. So, yeah. And yet I feel I feel like there's a really good chance that we're going to get some of that weird, wacky stuff uh, to close things out. Well, you know, we already know certain things about, you know, masters and whatnot that seem difficult (laughs) to quite suss out how it's all going to fit together. And Cybermen, for that matter. And Cybermen of various kinds. So, Yeah. yeah, it's. It will be it will be interesting to see how he how he pulls off the end of um, his season, his final season in his era. But, you know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Kyle and Eric from the writer's room. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. You can find Doctor Who, the writer's room podcast online at dwtwr.libsyn.com. You can also find them on Twitter at dwtwr and email them at ericandkyle at gmail.com. Next week on This Week in Time Travel, now we know why Stephen Moffat wrote episode six of the season. It's Extremis, and we will be talking about it. And also, if we're lucky, the introduction of a brand new segment. Eep! Hey, thank you for joining us this week for This Week in Time Travel. You can find us on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. I'm on Twitter at numeral 2 minute time Lord, And Alyssa is on Twitter and Tumblr at Feminism. Hey, we're also on Facebook. And you can find us online at ThisWeekInTimeTravel.com. Jason Snell runs the network and graciously invited us. Our theme music is by Christopher Breen, and our podcast logo was designed by David J. Lore. Thanks for listening. Please, if you like what you're hearing, review us, subscribe to us, proselytize us, and we'll see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. <laughs>